This is Songwriter, the podcast that turns stories into songs. My name is Ben Arthur. Today, we have an excerpt from Sally Rooney's third novel, Beautiful World, Where Are You? The book is deeply engaged with the relationship between vulnerability and love, and both the beauty and terror of truly being seen. The song written in response is by Sam himself, and not only the song, but in a moment of circularity and happenstance worthy of fiction, Sam's life and his heart are entangled with these subjects too. For now, here's the first chapter of Beautiful World Where Are You by Sally Rooney, read by Aoife McMahon. A woman sat in a hotel bar, watching the door. Her appearance was neat and tidy. White blouse, fair hair tucked behind her ears. She glanced at the screen of her phone, on which was displayed a messaging interface, and then looked back at the door again. It was late March, the bar was quiet, and outside the window to her right, the sun was beginning to set over the Atlantic. It was four minutes past seven, and then five, six minutes past. Briefly, and with no perceptible interest, she examined her fingernails. At eight minutes past seven, a man entered through the door. He was slight and dark-haired, with a narrow face. He looked around, scanning the faces of the other patrons, and then took his phone out and checked the screen. The woman at the window noticed him, but beyond watching him, made no additional effort to catch his attention. They appeared to be about the same age, in their late twenties or early thirties. She let him stand there until he saw her and came over. Are you Alice? he said. That's me, she replied. Yeah, I'm Felix. Sorry I'm late. In a gentle tone, she replied, that's all right. He asked her what she wanted to drink and then went to the bar to order. The waitress asked how he was getting on and he answered, good, yeah, yourself. He ordered a vodka tonic and a pint of lager. Rather than carrying the bottle of tonic back to the table, he emptied it into the glass with a quick and practiced movement of his wrist. The woman at the table tapped her fingers on the beer mat, waiting. Her outward attitude had become more alert and lively since the man had entered the room. She looked outside now at the sunset, as if it were of interest to her, though she hadn't paid any attention to it before. When the man returned and put the drinks down, a drop of lager spilled over, and she watched its rapid progress down the side of his glass. You were saying you just moved here, he said. Is that right? She nodded, sipped her drink, licked her top lip. What did you do that for? he asked. What do you mean? I mean, there's not much in the way of people moving here usually. People moving away from here, that would be more the normal thing. You're hardly here for work, are you? Oh, no, not really. A momentary glance between them seemed to confirm that he was expecting more of an explanation. Her expression flickered, as if she were trying to make a decision. And then she gave a little informal, almost conspiratorial smile. Well. I was looking to move somewhere anyway, she said. And then I heard about a house just outside town here. A friend of mine knows the owners. Apparently they've been trying to sell it forever. 
and eventually they just started looking for someone to live there in the meantime. Anyway, I thought it would be nice to live beside the sea. I suppose it was a bit impulsive, really. So, but that's the entire story. There was no other reason. He was drinking and listening to her. Toward the end of her remarks, she seemed to have become slightly nervous, which expressed itself in a shortness of breath and a kind of self-mocking expression. He watched this performance impassively and then put his glass down. Right, he said. And you were in Dublin before, was it? Different places. I was in New York for a while. I'm from Dublin, I think I told you that. But I was living in New York until last year. And what are you going to do now you're here? Look for work or something? She paused. He smiled and sat back in his seat, still looking at her. Sorry for all the questions, he said. I don't think I get the full story yet. No, I don't mind. But I'm not very good at giving answers, as you can see. What do you work as then? That's my last question. She smiled back at him, tightly now. I'm a writer, she said. Why don't you tell me what you do? Ah, it's not as unusual as that. I wonder what you write about, but I won't ask. I work in a warehouse outside town. Doing what? Well, doing what? He repeated philosophically. Collecting orders off the shelves and putting them in a trolley and then bringing them up to be packed. Nothing too exciting. Don't you like it then? Jesus, no, he said. I fucking hate the place. But they wouldn't be paying me to do something I liked, would they? That's the thing about work. If it was any good, you'd do it for free. She smiled and said that was true. Outside the window, the sky had grown darker, and the lights down at the caravan park were coming on. The cool, salt glow of the outdoor lamps, and the warmer yellow lights in the windows. The waitress from behind the bar had come out to mop down the empty tables with a cloth. The woman, named Alice, watched her for a few seconds and then looked at the man again. So, what do people do for fun around here? She asked. It's the same as any place. A few pubs around. Nightclub down in Ballina. That's about 20 minutes in the car. And we have the amusements, obviously, but that's more for the kids. I suppose you don't really have friends around here yet, do you? I think you're the first person I've had a conversation with since I moved in. He raised his eyebrows. Are you shy? He said. You tell me. They looked at one another. She no longer looked nervous now, but somehow remote, while his eyes moved around her face, as if trying to put something together. He did not seem, in the end, after a second or two, to conclude that he had succeeded. I think you might be, he said. She asked where he was living, and he said he was renting a house with friends nearby. Looking out the window, he added that the estate was almost visible from where they were sitting, just past the caravan park. He leaned over the table to show her, but then said it was too dark after all. Anyway, just the other side there, he said. As he leaned close to her, their eyes met. She dropped her gaze into her lap, and taking his seat again, he seemed to suppress a smile. She asked if his parents were still living locally. He said his mother had passed away the year before, and that his father was God knows where. I mean, to be fair, he's probably somewhere like Galway, he added. He's not going to turn up down in Argentina or anything, but I haven't seen him in years. I'm so sorry about your mother, she said.
Yeah, thanks. I actually haven't seen my father in a while either. He's not very reliable. Felix looked up from his glass. Oh, he said, drinker, is he? Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he makes up stories. Felix nodded. I thought that was your job, he said. She blushed visibly at this remark, which seemed to take him by surprise and even alarm him. Very funny, she said. Anyway, would you like another drink? After the second, they had a third. He asked if she had siblings, and she said one, a younger brother. He said he had a brother too. By the end of the third drink, Alice's face looked pink, and her eyes had become glassy and bright. Felix looked exactly the same as he had when he had entered the bar, no change in manner or tone. But while her gaze increasingly roamed around the room, expressing a more diffuse interest in her surroundings, the attention he paid to her had become more watchful and intent. She rattled the ice in her empty glass, amusing herself. Would you like to see my house? She asked. I've been wanting to show it off, but I don't know anyone to invite. I mean, I am going to invite my friends, obviously, but they're all over the place. In New York? In Dublin, mostly. Whereabouts is the house? He said. Can we walk there? Most certainly we can. In fact, we'll have to. I can't drive. Can you? Not right now, no. Or I wouldn't chance it anyway. But I do have my license, yeah. Do you? She murmured. How romantic. Do you want another or shall we go? He frowned to himself at this question, or at the phrasing of the question, or at the use of the word romantic. She was rooting in her handbag without looking up. Yeah, let's head on, why not, he said. She stood up and began to put on her jacket, a beige single-breasted raincoat. He watched her fold back one sleeve cuff to match the other. Standing upright, he was only just taller than she was. How far is it, he said. She smiled at him playfully. Do you have second thoughts? She said. If you get tired of walking, you can always abandon me and turn back. I'm quite used to it. The walk, that is, not being abandoned. I might be used to that as well, but it's not the sort of thing I confess to strangers. now, the song written in response. Please note, all music in this episode is by Sam himself. I'm Sam himself, and I write songs, and I perform them. I call it Fondue Western, the result, which is a niche genre that is mostly me at this point. (laughs) And the reason I call it that is because I, I am Swiss originally, but I've been living in New York for pretty much a decade. So I try to like bring in the best of both worlds with a little bit of uh, Ennio Morricone. For me, there has to be a level of irony in the many ways outside of my music that I present myself. I would not want that in my music so much. I feel myself much more drawn to musicians who do not have the protection or the veneer of irony, I think it can be very successful as a device. It can also be a cop-out, to which I think I might be 
more susceptible if I allowed myself much irony in my songs. So I try to leave room for it in the presentation or in the, you know, marketing myself. You can't take yourself too seriously if you make indie rock in 2023. It can be a protective layer against like committing to, let's say, emotion. You, you always have that like second option if, if you're resorting to irony of like, this wasn't my voice, which leaves you like plain B, sort of a backdoor to escape into. Then you're less exposed and less vulnerable and to me that's less interesting. A friend of mine said like the worst part about being seen is being seen. <laughs> and the same probably goes for being heard because suddenly like there you are in front of all those people you, you've been calling out to for so long. I wasn't initially keen on doing a solo project at all. I still feel awkward about that, the exposure of it. It was literally just like the last remaining option after like even the duo I was in imploded. <laughs> and I want to keep reminding myself that like no one's forcing me to do this. You know, like if if I feel the, the violin like starting to really um, play my, my woeful tune about how hard my life is as Fondue Western, where it's like, well, you could really just get up tomorrow and like do literally anything else. You know, I'm doing this because I want to do it. My my first instinct is always to be sort of confessional, to write from within my own point of view, to the point where I feel a uh, need to escape from that. Like, uh, uh, I, I need to expand my. Um, literary abilities in my you know, pop song lyrics beyond like the parts of my own experience that happen to rhyme, <laughs> ideally. Beautiful World Where Are You is many things, but it is also a love story. And as it happens, Sam just fell in love for what feels like the first time. I did fall in love and, and it did happen through online dating. It happened like from opposite ends of the world, like in a way that I can't imagine like could have happened, would have happened were it not for the insane loneliness and isolation of the pandemic where like you, without thinking twice about it, begin these dissolary romances with um, someone you have no reason to assume will ever meet in person. I'm living, I think, in my mother's attic in Switzerland. I can't go back to New York because COVID. I'm drinking at least a bottle of like whatever she has in the basement a day. My partner kind of found me as I I, I want to like take ownership of my part in it, but found me on some app and was like, let's talk. It's interesting to get to know someone with just words or conversations at first. No movies, no bars, just like your mug and your, your words. It is maybe the single most direct way of accessing another consciousness that I think we, we have. When we met for the first time, it was January 2021 in Brooklyn, New York. I, I mean, she walked into my door and, and that was the person I, I knew. That's, it's, it's hard not to make that sound corny, I understand, but like, yeah, I can't believe it. Like, I, I, 
I cannot believe that that's how how he went down. Obviously, there's like furious cleaning going on, right? Because this is an apartment I've like days before got back to for the first time that various friends have like crashed at over the course of this pandemic. Also, like of body of self, because like been a while since last encounter of romantic nature with other humans. Really, yeah, I basically was having a panic attack as it was happening, and then her presence was just over the mask, right? Mind you, like opening the door and just seeing the eyes of, of a person that you feel familiar with already and being like, yeah, it, it's, it continues to be the single most romantic experience of my life. It, it feels like the first romantic experience of my life. It feels like I, I had no clue. I still don't, but like I definitely didn't have a clue before. In this novel, it takes a woman to make a man understand like what it means to feel not just love or, or tenderness like romantically, but like to feel and to feel compassionately and, and with empathy and to struggle and, and to, to like find words for struggling. I think that is something that like, God, is there a lot work, a lot of work to do for straight men to, to like find comfort in vulnerability that is not just like gazing at our own wounds right like see Kurt Cobain whatever like that is not just like the, the the glorification of suffering or like suffering as competition as like extension of masculinity but that is just like human I was I was at a point of like true nihilism and like full fuck you to any like future version of anything including myself at, at the time when, when we met like hence why it's not just like faux humility to be like oh, what me you're choosing me like i was a fucking wreck like not that i'm not now but but there was something like very hopeless and, and nihilistic about that time and, and like how I was trying to cope and then sort of stop trying to cope with that time. And I think to like just sign up for like trying to be a little better, trying to sleep a little more, trying to drink a little less, trying to like imagine what your body's going to be like 10 years down the line if you continue to smoke two packs of American screws a day. Like that stuff was genuinely sort of off in almost like a sulky way in hindsight. But like at the height of the pandemic, I don't know about you, it's like, well, there goes that. There go all the like, you know, both good habits I've managed to acquire as, as an adult. <laughs> um, and like income, all the bad ones without any, any restraint. gentle way I think that just her presence and having someone's cosign having someone else like be like you're okay we're all going through it we're like we're doing what we can that has been gradually a gift she's badass <laughs> she she, uh, she she did it her own way and, and, and some of that I'm currently trying to kind of copy um, and generally internalize and, and um, be inspired by what made this um to reel from the jump was was my now partner's then 
love interest ability to, to see through my bullshit, to, to be utterly unimpressed <laughs> by, by like the, the smoke screens um, I tried to put up, which as you can imagine, makes dating slash courtship a lot harder <laughs> to find safety in that and like comfort and pleasure in that um, as you are. Ports and all, as they say, is is a that feels transformative. That everything else is like is a waste of time in terms of my own relationship experience. I think one of the first sonic elements of the song that I kind of like that came to me was this little just this like. I mean, basically just like humming into my phone, I think. And I kept that because I liked it and, and I, I probably messed around with it a little bit, edited it and, and like I kept repeating because I, I wanted to have like a almost a circular, like repetitive skeleton, like a little spine sort of for the song to then work around because there is there is something like repetitive and circular in, in like online dating. It felt like the right starting point very intuitively, like a siren's fall that was happened to be my own. <laughs> this is Sam himself with a little love.
That was Sam himself's song, With a Little Love. The excerpt of Beautiful World, Where Are You? is courtesy of Macmillan Audio. Special thanks to Samantha Adelson and her team there at Macmillan. This episode took a second. The next episode of Songwriter will feature a reading from Pulitzer Prize-winning author Andrew Sean Greer and a song written in response by Torquil Campbell of the pop band Stars and Daniel Handler, a.k.a. Lemony Snicket. Songwriter is 100% independently produced. If you want to support the artists and the producer who makes it, please consider a premium subscription only at Apple Podcasts. Five-star reviews and kind words on social media or in real life are always appreciated as well. You can always get early access to Songwriter at Paste. Just go to pastemagazine.com and search for Ben Arthur. And while you're there, check out the Paste podcast or get it wherever you get yours. Finally, as always, thanks to Rob Reinhardt and Acoustic Cafe.